Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Sherry Wong was asleep in her hotel room when the phone rang. It was January 2020, and the 25-year-old from Ottawa was on a trip to Vancouver. She'd just wrapped up a busy week for the launch of a new activist group called the Alliance Canada Hong Kong. They accused the Chinese government of cracking down on human rights in Hong Kong and against its Uyghur Muslim minority in Xinjiang. Wong's Vancouver hotel room had been booked for the event by a colleague under a different name. She hadn't told anyone where she was staying, which is why it was strange when the hotel phone rang at 7 o'clock in the morning. But she answered it anyway. The boys on the phone just kept saying, I'm coming to get you, we're coming to get you. They identified my room number, they identified me by name, and just repeated, we're coming to get you. And when I hung up, I kind of just sat there in silence, and the fear overcame me then. The thought that someone knows where I am, knows who I am, and like they said, they're coming to get me. I'm Jeff Semple, Senior Correspondent for Global News, and this is China Rising, Episode 6, Under Pressure. On February the 9th, 2021, the director of CSIS, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, issued a rare public warning about a covert campaign by the Chinese government targeting Canadians. These activities are different from the norms of diplomatic activity because they cross the line by attempting to undermine our democratic processes and threaten our citizens in a covert and clandestine manner. To be clear, the threat does not come from the Chinese people, but rather from the government of China that is pursuing a strategy for geopolitical advantage on all fronts. David Vignon specifically pointed to China's Operation Fox Hunt launched by Beijing in 2014 as an anti-corruption campaign to target wealthy Chinese citizens and Communist Party members who had fled overseas. But both CSIS and the FBI recently warned the operation's new true aim is to crack down on dissent in foreign countries, including Canada and the United States. Simply put, it's outrageous that China thinks it can come to our shores conduct illegal operations and bend people here in the United States to their will. In October 2020, FBI Director Christopher Wray and the U.S. Justice Department announced charges against eight suspects accused of conspiring with the Chinese government to target residents of the United States, threatening them, their families, and in some cases, coercing them to travel to China. 美国是中国外逃腐败和经济犯罪嫌疑人 
A spokesperson for the Chinese Foreign Ministry denounced the allegations as rumors and smears and accused the United States of turning itself into a safe haven for criminals. The sad fact is that this was hardly an isolated incident, and China's tactics have been appalling. The FBI and CSIS said the targets of Operation Fox Hunt are typically members of China's diaspora, Chinese nationals living in the United States and Canada, people like Sherry Wong. I am a Hong Konger Canadian. So I was raised in Hong Kong. I moved back to Canada about 10 years ago. You know, I grew up under the post-handover Hong Kong. So it was, you know, a childhood of not understanding the political environment that I was in, but growing up to that passive, Beijing is always watching. You don't say anything that offends the party. Um, but it didn't really, like, it didn't click until I moved to Canada and, like, was thinking, oh, I could openly express my political opinions here in Canada because that's the kind of democratic nation that Canada is. Wong started voicing those political opinions in 2019. In June of that year, mass pro-democracy protests erupted in Hong Kong. I was sent to the city that summer to report on the story for Global News. I've covered protests all over the world, but I've never seen anything quite like the demonstrations in Hong Kong. They dragged on for months. At its peak, more than two million people marched through the streets. At times, the protests turned violent. But for the most part, demonstrators were remarkably peaceful, polite, and organized. We'll delve deeper into the situation facing Hong Kong on the next episode of China Rising. But the protests were sparked by a controversial new law that allows the government to extradite residents of Hong Kong to face criminal charges in mainland China. Now remember, Hong Kong is supposed to be a semi-autonomous city. It was a British territory until 1997, when the UK handed it over to China. But the handover agreement gave the city special status for 50 years that included protections for freedom of speech, the press, and assembly, freedoms that are not enjoyed in mainland China. Critics of the new extradition bill worried Beijing could use the law to prosecute its political opponents in Hong Kong. And those fears fueled protests far beyond Hong Kong's borders. In August 2019, Sherry Wong helped to organize Hong Kong pro-democracy protests in Canada, and she gave an interview to a local journalist who was covering the events. I was just a regular individual speaking to radio hosts and regular person who's commenting about, you know, my love for Hong Kong. And it was almost an onslaught, a wave of online harassment. So my Twitter was filled with hate and filled with people um, calling me names anywhere from demo crazy, playing on democracy as a pun, to um, calling me a race traitor, death threats, <laughs> rape threats. Um, the amount of online violence almost immediately after each press 
interview has made has confirmed my family suspicion and the kind of whispers that I grew up to is the moment you speak out against the party, there will be consequences facing you. But Wong says she mostly shrugged it off, chalking it up to a bunch of angry online Twitter trolls or bots until that January morning in 2020 when the phone rang in her Vancouver hotel room. And that was a very clear indication that I am being threatened. This is a threat to my personal safety because of the work that I do. Um, And since then, I've felt various different threats. Um, There's rape threats, death threats that are ongoing, but there has been very little action from the law enforcement agencies to help me provide, you know, any kind of safety or even a sense of a safety. Wong reported the incident to police, but says she was told the phrase, we're coming for you, didn't constitute a clear threat to her safety. Vancouver police told Global News it investigated and concluded no threats were made. In a statement, a police spokesperson said that the hotel had previously been having problems with scammers, phoning customers in their rooms, and it's possible this was another scam call. Wong says complete strangers have since taken photographs of her while in public, including once while she was waiting at her local bus stop. When she questioned the person, she says they took off. Those photographs then appeared online in chat groups on the popular Chinese messaging app WeChat, along with other personal details. My phone number, my email, my like where I usually show up in my city, like my neighborhood, that kind of information was being circulated in these WeChat groups to say, look out for this. Uh, the words were race trader. Look out for this race trader when you see her in these regions. There has been known incidents where activists were beaten on the streets um, in foreign countries. There has been disappearances in liberal democracies where Chinese individuals dis- disappear and reappear in China. Like all of these are real threats and that's why people aren't willing to speak up. I am scared out of my mind. Like (laughs) every day I am scared out of my mind. What's your sense of where this is coming from? It's very complicated. Wong says some of the alleged harassment and intimidation comes from ordinary patriotic members of Canada's Chinese community. Just regular people actually feeling like they need to protect the motherland's reputation. But she also believes she's been targeted by a Chinese state-sponsored campaign. In May of this year, Wong and her group, Alliance Canada Hong Kong, presented a report to Canadian Parliament, the House of Commons Committee on Canada-China Relations. It's called In Plain Sight, Beijing's Unrestricted Network of Foreign Influence in Canada. The report covers a range of issues, and it accuses the Chinese Communist Party of conducting a campaign of surveillance and intimidation, targeting the Chinese diaspora and dissident communities in Canada. The CCP has increasingly decided the overseas communities is a threat to the regime. So in some ways... We know a lot of these harassment, especially some instance where it is very clearly coordinated um, through consulates, uh, through CCP and party and state officials. In a statement, a spokesperson for the Chinese embassy in Canada said China has never conducted and will never conduct any interference or infiltration 
against another country, calling Wong's report errant nonsense. But there have been cases involving surveillance, harassment, and intimidation in Canada where an alleged link to the Chinese government is difficult to deny. In February 2019, a Uyghur Canadian named Rakia Tordouche was invited to give a speech at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. Tordouche grew up in China and moved to Canada in 1998. She became a vocal critic of the Chinese government's treatment of its Uyghur Muslim minority, which Canadian Parliament recently called a genocide. Tordouche had been giving presentations to various religious and community groups in Ontario when she was invited by a Muslim student association to speak at McMaster. The title of the talk was The Genocide of Uyghur Muslims. I show videos, satellite images, photos, real persons, life experiences. Tordouche says more than 100 people attended, including several individuals who appeared to be of Chinese ethnic origin. Tordouche said one of those students who identified himself as Chinese recorded a video of her presentation. When it was over, she took questions from the audience and asked what the students thought of her speech. The Chinese student said she had no right to speak at McMaster, called her a traitor, yelled F you, and stormed out of the auditorium. video of the exchange was recorded by another student. In a separate outburst during the presentation, she says a different student also shouted in Mandarin that she was garbage. Then uh, he left. I said, okay, he's Chinese, that's why he's saying, and I ignored him. I continued my speech. I didn't stop. Of course I upset, but I continued my speech and I come back home, I come, I'm come home and uh, I didn't do anything. The next day, they published the statement. A statement posted online the following day, signed by McMaster's Chinese Students and Scholars Association, condemned what it described as Tordush's absurd anti-Chinese presentation. The statement also said the group had informed the Chinese consulate of the situation. And that's not the only time the consulate is mentioned in regards to the presentation. Screenshots of an online WeChat group, which were shared with Global News, show a conversation between several people in Mandarin discussing and condemning Tardush's talk. Members of the chat group claimed to be in contact with the Chinese consulate. They were encouraged to attend and to disrupt her presentation, which it appears is exactly what they did. They were also told to record video of the talk, which they also did. And it appears that video was then uploaded and shared with the same WeChat group. In one of the screenshots, the chat group called Islam an invasion. And they also discussed Tordush's son. At the beginning of her presentation, she mentioned her son was a first-year student at McMaster. Well, someone in the WeChat group said they should find out who he is. He said, okay, her son is going to hear, find out every information about her son. Who's her son? I was angry. I'm getting crazy. And I said, because why do I look for my son? That makes me sick. Both the Chinese consulate and the Chinese Students and Scholars Association denied having any contact about Tordush's presentation. 
but McMaster's student union government suspended the Chinese student group's funding and status for one year. They cited concerns that members had reported campus activity to the Chinese government. In a statement appealing that decision, a lawyer for the Chinese Students and Scholars Association said the group did not contact the consulate, despite what its earlier statement claimed. The club blamed a former McMaster student, whom it said contacted the consulate about the event without consulting the group's members. McMaster's student union government rejected that argument and upheld the suspension. Stories of harassment against those who speak out against the Chinese Communist Party aren't uncommon, though rarely are they accompanied by written evidence of possible coordination with Chinese officials. The extent to which Chinese diplomats are allegedly involved in surveillance and intimidation on Canadian soil is unclear, and it's also a matter of intense debate. We are allowing them to run around this country and uh, try to dictate how Canadians live their lives. That's Jonathan Manthorpe. He's a veteran foreign correspondent and author who has written extensively about what he calls Beijing's covert campaign of influence and intimidation in Canada. In Canada, uh, they've, they've used agents of influence in, uh, uh, in, in academia and in, and in government uh, to gain access to Canadian technology. Uh, they've, uh, they've used it to gain access to Canadian resources. Um, and they've also used it to uh, be able to control as far as they possibly can the 1.5 million people, uh, Canadians, of ethnic Chinese heritage. And this, I think, is really one of the most alarming and disgusting situations. Manthorpe notes there are about as many Chinese diplomats in Canada as there are from the United States. The U.S. is by far our largest trading partner, responsible for about three-quarters of Canadian exports. While China is a distant second at around 5%. There is no need for the Chinese Communist Party to have the, the number of diplomats uh, that it does here, unless many of them are what is known as two-hatted, that they are, in fact, uh, espionage agents. And we've seen a lot of their activities amongst um, Chinese students in Canadian colleges and universities. The, the, the pressure, the constant pressure and, and um, observation and intimidation of Chinese students here at uh, Canadian colleges and universities is a horrific story all of its own um, and, and needs, to be, needs to be confronted. You know, the, we need to tell Chinese diplomats that they, they do not do this sort of stuff here. And it would, in my view, be a good idea to expel a few. Um, they got way more than they need to in order to be able to function. But those allegations of Chinese agents spying on Canadians have also stoked paranoia and racism against anyone seen to be sympathetic towards Beijing. That's according to Fiona, who asked us not to reveal her last name. As an immigrant from mainland China, I moved to Canada because I love here more, of course. But it doesn't mean I should hate China. She's in her 30s and moved to Canada from China in 2012. So I just cannot believe why Chinese immigrants must hate China or anti-China to be a good Canadian. 
She says she's been targeted with abuse, accused of being an agent of the Chinese government. None of my family members, including me, have any relationship with the Communist Party of China. I'm not anti-China and I'm not pro-China. I will criticize Chinese government when they failed in something such as the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, but I'm happy to share my experience in China. It was not that evil as people imagine here. It has both happy and sad memories like we, we can experience in any country. Actually, most Chinese immigrants belong to this category standing in the middle point, but we lost our voice because the media or the public didn't want to hear. Last year, Vancouver police reported 98 anti-Asian hate crimes, a 700% increase. So last March, Fiona helped to organize an anti-Asian racism rally in Vancouver. But for their efforts, she and others were targeted with online abuse from other members of the Chinese community, apparently because they'd failed to invite any groups that are openly critical of Beijing. Therefore, we might be sent by the Chinese government to stir up Canada through organizing Stop Asian Hate Rally. I was shocked. I was heartbreaking. I was frustrated and aggrieved. Because, you know, uh, as silent Asian Canadians, we need lots of courage to speak up. But this slur and stigma seriously hurt the Chinese community in Canada who tried to speak up for ourselves. Leo Xin is a professor and Chinese cultural historian at the University of British Columbia. He says many Chinese Canadians are afraid to share their political beliefs with anyone. Not knowing whether your your friends and your your neighbors and your your acquaintances are monitoring you, um, we don't know. Nobody knows. So, but but that that's the possibility of that is also what makes it work. He disagrees with claims that Chinese diplomats are quietly pulling the strings behind the scenes, but says Beijing has shown a keen interest in fiercely controlling the narrative, both at home and abroad. I don't think the council is giving direct orders, but is clearly interested in promoting the story of China and um, the wider community, both the Chinese communities here and even the Chinese students, they are aware of the interest of the consulate. They are aware of the interest of the Chinese government. Anyone who dares to challenge Beijing's version risks facing the consequences, particularly people who still have family members living in China, like Anastasia Lin. I'm a Canadian actress. I live in the States right now. Um, for the past few years, I've been doing a lot of human rights work around China. The 31-year-old was born in Hunan, China. Her father was a successful businessman, her mother a university professor. My family, they were in very good standing, uh, like politically and economically, so they're considered, both my parents were considered the elites of society. Lin was a good student, and from a young age, her mother encouraged her to become involved in student politics. She was a fiercely patriotic leader in the Young Pioneers, the youth branch of the Chinese Communist Party. 
But after her parents divorced, she and her mother immigrated to Vancouver when she was 13. The education, of course, is very different. And it took me a very long time to learn about the society. So I think that's something that uh, Western, like people who lived in the West most of their life sometimes can't really understand is that people moved from authoritarian society into a free country usually don't just adjust so readily to the ideas, the freedom, the democracy, all the process. It does take a few years and take a person's active research and learning to understand society. That transition wasn't easy. For years, during her teens, she would get defensive anytime anyone criticized China's communist regime. After a while, Lin's mother encouraged her to read Canadian and other Western newspapers. And she came across a story marking the anniversary of Hong Kong's so-called June 4th incident. That's the day back in 1989 when student protesters took to Tiananmen Square and the Chinese military responded with a brutal, bloody crackdown. Any mention of the events of June 4th is strictly censored within China. So it was all news to Lin. June 4th, massacre which is an event that I had never heard of in China in my 13 years of life. And that period of history, for the ones who experience it, the Communist Party, the regime, try to suppress the memory so deep that indignity is sort of there, but you just don't talk about it. And then for people like me who were born after the Tiananmen Massacre, we just have never heard of this historical event. And so I read that and I was totally shocked. So I went online and watched more videos it sort of changed my worldview completely. And I did more research after that. That research included talking to a crowd of human rights protesters outside the Chinese consulate in Vancouver. You see them everywhere. They barely get noticed because protests happen here so easily. People don't appreciate the freedom that you can actually go on the street and voice your opinion in a peaceful way without getting killed. Um, so I went to talk to a lot of those people, and I went to teach Uyghur students. Lynn is a classically trained pianist and worked in Vancouver as a piano teacher. One of her students was a member of China's persecuted Uyghur minority, whose family had fled to Canada. And then I taught their children piano, and to try to learn about their persecution and stories in China. And I was totally surprised to learn that they have a totally different identity um, than the one that I was taught about them in China. So um, after learning about all of that and also the persecution of Falun Gong practitioners, so I wanted to be able to uh, channel their story because I realized that a lot of them, although living in China, uh, living in Canada, because of their language barrier, they don't really have a um, proper way to tell their stories, but they really have heroic stories to tell. And so I wanted to find a platform. And then I was inspired by a former Miss World Canada. And then I joined the Miss World pageant. Live from the theater at the MGM National Harbor, this is the 66th Miss World Final. This my girl. In 2015, Lynn was crowned Miss World Canada. 
and she used the platform of the beauty pageant to speak out about alleged human rights abuses in China. The winner of the annual pageant earns a chance to compete on the international stage at the Miss World competition, which, incidentally, in 2015, was hosted by China. As contestants from more than 110 countries danced onto the stage for the opening ceremony, Miss Canada, Anastasia Lin, was notably absent. Lin was denied a Chinese visa to attend the month-long pageant. Canada's Miss World contestant says China is blocking her from going to the final competition because of her activism. The decision to ban a Canadian beauty queen made international news, including the front page of the New York Times. The Chinese embassy in Ottawa declined to comment on Lin's visa application, but in a statement said China welcomes all lawful activities organized in China by international organizations or agencies, including the Miss World pageant, but China does not allow any persona non grata to come to China. What was your reaction when uh, when they told you that? Do you remember? Well, I was a bit surprised um, because it's a big government. They really didn't have to do that to a 25-year-old beauty queen. And I was uh, just graduating University of Toronto. I didn't think that they would take me that serious, seriously. And also because there were so many media outlets that were following the story at the time it sort of is a big humiliation for them. If they were trying to save face, which is, I think, what they were trying to do, then they sort of did the opposite thing. At first, Lin welcomed the international attention and the chance to do media interviews highlighting the human rights concerns that had apparently got her banned in the first place. But then, suddenly, Lin went quiet. She stopped doing interviews or speaking publicly at all after her father, still living in China, received a knock at the door from the Chinese state police. My father also told me that the uh, National Security Guard, the state agents, came to me and told him that if I don't stop speaking about politics or human rights-related things, then my family would be persecuted like in the Cultural Revolution. And he uh, wanted me to um, just don't put my family in such a situation by speaking up. So what did you do? Well, I obviously I wanted to just listen to my father and not do anything. Because first of all, it's, um, I guess a lot of Chinese, overseas Chinese felt this way and they told me they felt this way. We don't know if anybody's gonna be behind or be supporting us if we do choose to speak up. And we might live in Canada, but because our family and business are back home, there's really not, no guarantee that they will be safe. The Communist Party can do anything to them, and there's nothing we can do. She says numerous other family members in China were also threatened. Some claimed a dozen police officers arrived on their doorstep, demanding information on Lin and their relationship including some relatives whom Lin has never met. So the extent of how far the police are willing to go to intimidate a Chinese-Canadian's family is really beyond the comprehension. The following year, in 2016, Miss World offered Lin another chance to participate in the pageant. 
That year, the international competition was hosted by Washington, D.C. But Lynn says she had to sign an agreement promising she wouldn't speak to the media without the organization's permission. A lot of media, they were sending uh, interview requests to get me to speak about my platform. And at that time, uh, I had, like, there were a media standoff. The Miss World organization didn't give me permission to speak for the longest time. My father was facing such difficult situation, and I don't think this is a coincidence, that he was being pressured to a point that that I got really scared. So, and I couldn't speak to the media about it. So that was very difficult. Eventually, Lynn resumed her advocacy work, believing that speaking out might actually protect her father by keeping a spotlight on his situation. She says he still begs her to go to the Chinese consulate in Vancouver and submit an apology in writing. She also claims that some of her sponsors in Canada including a dressmaker, ended their business relationship, claiming they'd faced pressure from the consulate. And the Chinese government does not really recognize because you have a Canadian passport or a U.S. passport, therefore you are a U.S. citizen and or a Canadian citizen being protected by that country. They think all Chinese ethnicity uh, belong to them. And so uh, if you are Chinese uh, descent, then... Too bad they're going to use your family inside China. So they will use whatever leverage they have on you to pressure you to do what they want you to do. Lynn hopes that sharing her story will empower others to do the same. But Sherry Wong, the Hong Kong human rights campaigner whom we met at the beginning of this episode, isn't holding her breath. So many of my peers are so afraid. They're unwilling to show their face. They're unwilling to say, like, I am pro-Hong Kong democracy, even publicly to their friends or family, because they're so scared that their activism would land them in trouble. And that's exactly what I experienced, right? I mean, the consequences is not just, you know, getting, you know, life-threatening messages. It's your church rejecting you because your church is pro-regime. Your workplace, who skips you over for promotion because... They need to do business with a pro-regime partner. Like the fear is not necessarily, you know, I'm scared for my safety, but it could be anywhere from that social rejection to the very real reality that your family in China might get a knock on the door because the authorities would be there to have a conversation about your activism overseas. And the more adversarial China's relations with the West become, she says, the worse it gets. If Beijing is indeed attempting to intimidate, to send a chill through the diaspora, it appears to be working. Through our research for this podcast, we've connected with numerous people who want to share their opinions and their stories, but they won't. They say they can't. Afraid if they do, they'll be the next ones woken up in the morning by a frightening phone call. Next time on China Rising, we'll take a trip to Hong Kong, where the semi-autonomous city and its large community of Canadians are fighting back against Beijing's crackdown. I had to leave home with a backpack and with a small luggage. 
And by the time I couldn't even say goodbye with my family because、uh, I understand that if they knew that I was going, they could probably be、uh, apprehended. That's next time on China Rising. This podcast is written and produced by me, Jeff Semple, with producer Dila Velazquez. Audio editing and sound design is by Rob Johnston. Editing assistance from Stephanie D'Souza. You can help me share this podcast by telling a friend, and don't forget to rate and review China Rising on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can find me on Twitter at Jeff Semple GN, and you can email me at Jeff dot Semple. At globalnews.ca. Thanks for listening, and please join me next time on China Rising. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think French fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment, going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains, made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone. Like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.